Hey, a Penknife listeners, Corey here. I again got stuck with the task of bothering you to help us promote the show. This season was both extremely time-consuming and costly, and if you like what you're hearing and want more Penknife, please help us out by doing one or more of the following. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us right now, tell your friends both in person, if that still happens, and on social media, and if you can spare a few bucks a month, please support us at patreon.com penknife. Thanks for suffering through my spiel. Here's the show. I hope you enjoy it. Medley steak and kidney pies, now with added kidneys, presents, for your listening pleasure, Clack Porrit. Dear listener, we bring to you the original and immortal story of Clack Porrit, with Richard Metcalf as Sidney Porrit, Islington Borough Council's most daring lockluck, returning to defend Her Royal Majesty's reading public against... Malicious damage. We join our brave hero as he heads off two of the most dangerous criminals Islington has ever seen. Yes? Uh, Mr. Sidney Porritt, sir. Islington Council's principal law clerk at your service. My name is Mrs. Davies, and I'm calling from the Islington branch of the public library. For God's sake, have they been at it again? Yes, sir, I'm afraid that they have. Please, proceed, and don't spare a single detail. No matter how gruesome or vile, Sidney Porrett is not faint of heart. Well, sir, I regret to inform you that we found two doctored books today. What was it this time, Mrs Davies? I I wouldn't like to say, sir. Don't worry, Mrs Davies. Our conversation is strictly confidential. Well, the first one that turned up was a copy of a recent study of our distinguished poet, John Betjeman. And, well... In place of the author's photo, these two young men pasted... Well, I was just gobsmacked, Mr Porritt. Come along now, Mrs Davies, do spit it out. A horrid photo of a tattooed man wearing only his underpants. Nothing but underpants? Why, fronts? I'm sorry, sir. Yes, that's all he was wearing. Well, I'm dashed. Naked apart from his wife, fronts. Were you able to see any defining mark in them? A principal law clerk needs every detail, Mrs Davies. Oh, yes, sir. Um, well, uh, they were just regular underpants. Filled them out, did he? Uh, I suppose so, sir. And as if that wasn't enough, the man had a truly unnecessary amount of tattoos. As if there was a necessary amount, Mrs Davies. Well, indeed, you're right, sir. There is no such thing. And the second? The second is, in its own way, um, even more upsetting. A perfectly fine copy of Collins's Guide to Roses. Ah, yes, I know it well. My wife, Jean, is a devotee. My English rose loves her English roses. That's lovely, sir. I dabble in a spot of gardening myself. After a long day in the stack, one needs a little hobby to put one's mind at ease. Yes, yes, please do get to the point, Mrs Davies. I haven't got all day. Oh, of course. So sorry, sir. Yes, so on the cover of Collins's Guide to Roses, pasted in the centre of a beautiful yellow rose, is the face of a monkey. A monkey? We rejoin Clegg Porritt one week later. Principal Law Clerk Sidney Porritt speaking. 
Good day, Mr. Porritt. It's Mrs. Davies from Islington Public Library. Tell me, Mrs. Davies, has the sting operation been successful? Um, no, sir. I'm afraid it's gone a bit pear-shaped, actually. They're slippery rascals, these two. We've had our undercovers posted here and there in the gardening and reference sections for the past few days, and they just haven't turned up. And to make matters worse, Mr Phillips has been overwhelmed by what he describes as rather severe foot pain from the prolonged standing about your operation has entailed. He is rather elderly, sir. By God, Mrs Davies, then let the poor man sit. The whole point is to catch these villains in the act. Uh, but you said, sir, that the undercovers should be browsing in the stacks. Forget what I said, Mrs Davies, and put an end to this foolish operation immediately. We're obviously up against a criminal element far too wicked to be fooled by undercovers. I see I'm going to have to orchestrate a bit of a fiddle to entrap these two darlings. Serious measures that may compromise my ethics a bit, but sometimes a principal law clerk needs to get his hands dirty if he's going to clean up society's filthiest elements. Uh, but what on earth are you going to do, Mr Porritt? Just leave that to me, Mrs Davies. Detective Sergeant Harry Hermitage, a.k.a. the Hermit, has himself vested me with the power to take matters into my own hands, if and when the circumstances require it. And it seems they certainly do. Oh, Mr Porritt, it sounds so exciting. Just you wait, Mrs Davies. By this time next week, this reign of terror at the Islington Public Library will be over. They may be clever, these two, but they're going to fall lock, stock and barrel for my plan. You see, Mrs Davies, Principal Law Clerk Sidney Porritt is always one step ahead. After a word from our sponsors, you'll hear how a fearless hero, Principal Law Clerk Sidney Porritt, caught the dastardly defaces in this, the riveting case of malicious damage. Um, what the hell was that? You don't know? It's only one of the most famous crimes in the history of the London library system. A crime so ghastly that the perpetrators were sent away for six months as a result. Six months for defacing library books? Yep. And the culprits were none other than... Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell. Oh my goodness me! Why ever did they do it? Well, before we get into what brought them to commit such an appalling crime, I want to ask you two how you feel about libraries. How do I feel about libraries? I feel good. I mean, I like them well enough. Books for free and all. They're excellent for napping. But the truth is not all libraries are created equal. There are some very good libraries, like the one in Bethnal Green, and there are some crap ones as well. I love this quote from Orton, where he's not afraid to say what many a book lover has thought, but, well, isn't supposed to say because libraries are more sacred and untouchable than even recycling or bike lanes. He says... The thing that put me in a rage about libraries was that when I went to quite a big library in Islington and asked about Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, they told me they hadn't got a copy of it. It was symptomatic of the whole thing. I was enraged that there were so many rubbishy novels and rubbishy books. Fair enough. And you, Santi? Um, I'm all for real libraries. What I hate are these phony lending libraries that you see in cafes and restaurants these days, where there's a wall of books and you're encouraged to take one and read it while having a coffee. The whole idea is preposterous. No one is going to go to a cafe pull a novel from the shelf and sit there and read for 20 minutes. It's just not done. People go to cafes to sit and look at their phones, not to talk to each other and definitely not to read books. Well, my name is Corey Eastwood and I'm a bookseller and failing writer and I've always had a fondness for libraries, probably because my mom was a librarian. 
and my name is Santiago Lemoine. I'm a bookseller, failing writer, and also the son of a librarian. But these days I have to deal with so many rubbishy books that people dump at our bookstore that I have absolutely no interest in going to a library to see their rubbishy books. And I'm Ramona Stout. I'm the granddaughter of a librarian, but I've forsaken libraries for the local thrift store around these parts. Not so good for napping, but definitely better for books. You're listening to Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. This is episode three of season two, Crimes of Passion, the story of Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell. On the evening of May 16th, 1962, Joe Wharton's father is watching television when, during an advert, he flips through a copy of the Daily Mirror and comes across a headline, Gorilla in the Roses, captioned with a photo of the Collins Guide to Roses with an ape's face pasted in the middle of the centerpiece yellow rose. Here's Joe's sister, Leonie, explaining what he finds. Well, I was, uh, no, I mean, I remember, I remember my father sort of reading it in the local, in a national newspaper. Because um, my dad was a gardener, and um, the headline was um, something like "Gorilla in Among the Roses," and um, he thought it was this animal that had got loose in some flower bed. And of course, when you read it, you realised that Joe and Kenneth had been um, defacing these library books, and that they'd got a custodial sentence for them. And the article details their crimes. Orton, age 29, and Halliwell, age 35, have been charged with the theft of nearly 100 books, willfully damaging a number of others, and with removing 1,653 plates from art books. Total damage is estimated at 450 pounds. They each plead guilty to five counts of theft and malicious damage. Their sentence? Six months in the clink, or the nick as Joe called it. For the past three years, they've been stealing books from the library, then taking them home, doctoring them, and sneaking them back into the stacks. This appalling criminal campaign has three main elements. First, they begin cutting out pictures to use for Kenneth's collage that is growing like a mold from floor to ceiling on the back wall of their tiny bedsit. For his creation, Kenneth favors Renaissance art, dark in hue and tone, particularly images rich in mythology and symbolism. Next, for the second part of their crime, they begin making their collage art in the books themselves. There is, for instance, a tattooed man pasted over the photo of John Betjeman and the now classic ape's face stuck in between the rose petals. Here's Jim Connell, a special services librarian from the Islington branch, describing a few of their works. There's one here, it may not be very visible there, the pictures are rather small. It's a book about the great Tudors, and each one of the pictures has had a different face. That, in fact, is a monkey's face carefully pasted over the original face on the photograph. Uh, there's another one here which is mildly amusing. Uh, it's the novel, The Steel Cocoon, and there's a very tight jock strap pasted there underneath the title. Finally, the last element of their crime, which most engages their writing muscles, is to substitute the book's jacket blurbs with their own versions mimicking the original style. These new blurbs are always bawdy, a bit vulgar, and more often than not, Hilarious. After carefully taping the dust jackets back together, they smuggle the books back into the library and return them to the rightful place on the shelves. Um, most of these blurbs were written in the true style so that one started reading almost without realizing that this was a thing which had been doctored. I'll read you a little bit of this one. 
When little Betty McDree says that she's been interfered with, her mother at first laughs. It is only something the kiddies picked up off the television. But when sorting through the laundry, Mrs. McDree discovers that a new pair of young Betty's knickers are missing, she thinks again. It goes on like that. <coughs> they go to the police station and young Betty identifies PC Brenda Coolidge as the attacker. A search is made of the women's police barracks. What is found there is a seven-inch phallus and a pair of knickers of the kind used by Betty. All looks black for kindly PC Coolidge. What can she do? This is one of the most enthralling stories ever written by Miss Sayers. It is the only one in which the murder weapon is concealed, not for reasons of fear, but for reasons of decency. And he goes on to say, read this behind closed doors and have a good shit whilst you're reading it. That's the sort of thing that shocked quite a number of our readers, the elderly, more ladylike ones. <coughs> I must say that I and many of my colleagues almost looked forward to seeing these. They were, they were amusing to us. But at the same time, of course, this was... <coughs> This was uh, an attack on our books. Our book stock, of which we were very proud, was being attacked by predators. <laughs> <laughs> the way he holds himself back from laughing and then pivots to the official position of the library being under attack by predators is absolutely priceless. Yeah, these blurbs are funny in a lot of the same ways Orton's plays are funny. As we'll hear later, many an Orton production has failed because the director makes the mistake of rendering the characters deliberately goofy. But Orton's talent was in disguising the absurd, the grotesque and the perverse inside of the ordinary. So you're not exactly sure when to laugh. It's uncomfortable because the joke is partially on you. Right, you're reading the blurb, believing it's real, and then at a certain point you realize you've been had. Or you don't, and then you're disappointed. As Orton said, Many people borrowed the books in the library on the strength of my blurbs and returned them with complaints when the published story didn't live up to mine. To me, the best part of their pranks is that after they return the books, they often sit around and wait to watch the other patrons react to their work. I can imagine a lot of wide eyes and aghast, oh dears. Yeah, and lots of blushing too. You know, this has me thinking about those narrative boxes we talked about in episode one. How later when we hear all about their troubled relationship and deaths, it's very easy to put Kenneth and Joe in a box labeled tragic. Or tragic and gay. Uh, so often throughout history, whenever gay people meet tragic ends, the straight narrative is that they ended up that way because they were gay. Right. Picture this proverbial box we keep talking about. In a big black sharpie, you've got the word tragic, and then under that, gay. And then all the homophobic narratives also throw guilty on the box in big red letters. These days, though, the good, well-meaning liberal teller of the Orton and Halliwell story is more likely to put them in the same tragic gay box, but instead of labeling them guilty, they'd be called victims instead. And the victim label, I think, does just as much disservice to who they really were as the guilty one does. Anyhow, I, I bring this up because now, thinking of the two of them sitting in the library, waiting around for someone to pick up one of their doctored books while attempting to keep a straight face is... To me, a level of joy that's not easy to attain. There's nothing tragic nor victim-y about it. I love the fact that the work that seems to have caused the most outrage, and the one that's most remembered, I guess because of the initial news story, was the Collins Book of Roses with the gorilla's head pasted inside the yellow rose. The term gorilla art, spelled with G-U-E, wouldn't be coined for another 22 years. But here, long before the Gorilla Girls billboards or Banksy stencils were two authentic G-U-E and G-O Gorilla artists. In Orton's words, 
One of the greatest things at the trial, the greatest outrage, the one for which I think I was sent to prison, was that I had stuck a monkey's face in the middle of a rose. It was a beautiful rose. What I had done was held up as the depth of iniquity for which I should probably have been burged. They won't ever do that, so they just sent me to prison for six months. Uh, Ramona, translation please. What does birch mean? Birch as in a type of branch used to whip, cane or flog, if you will. At 9am on the morning of April 28th, 1962, Detective Sergeant Henry the Hermit, Hermitage, and a constable knock on the door of flat 425 Knoll Road. It's answered by Kenneth Halliwell, whose who the hell is bothering me at this hour face falls when he's greeted by the hermit who tells him to step aside. They have a search warrant. Kenneth swallows and mutters an, oh dear. As would any good British criminal whose gig is up. Oh dear, now I'm going to miss my trickle in crumpets this afternoon. The arrest has been in the works for a long time now. The library staff began to notice the missing into Facebooks in 1960, but it's taken two years of head-scratching, followed by several months of active detective work, before they're finally able to snag the elusive defacers. In the initial news report, this chap, D.S. Hermit, seems to take all the credit, claiming that he's gone undercover as a librarian every Saturday to stake out the joint and try to catch the bad guys in action. And while we have no evidence to prove that that's not true, at the very least it seems he wasn't alone in his work and that other librarians also went undercover as patrons lingering around the shelves for hours hoping for a glimpse of the crime. And the other clown to emerge and take credit for cracking the case and bringing these two dangerous criminals to justice is the principal law clerk for the Islington Borough Council, Sidney Porritt, star of the hit radio drama Clerk Porritt that you heard open the show. While the sting operation is unsuccessful, it does allow them to pinpoint Orton and Halliwell as the prime suspects. According to Sidney Porritt, the hermit tried to wash his hands of the case, claiming it wasn't a police matter. But he did say that if Porritt could get proof that the dust jackets were being doctored on Joe and Kenneth's typewriter, then he'd have enough to arrest them. And that's enough for our hero, Clerk Porritt, who sure he will, in his words, catch these two monkeys, perhaps because he's willing to use dubious tactics to do so. Again, in his words, I played them a slightly dirty trick. I thought, okay, I'll let my ethics slip a bit. I want to get them aggravated. They were a couple of darlings, make no mistake. Now, I sometimes have trouble decoding early 60s British English, or British English from any era for that matter, but I'm quite sure that this stalwart defender of free public knowledge just justified his underhanded tactics because the perpetrators were darlings, i.e. gay. Yep. So Porritt writes Halliwell a letter saying that Halliwell's car is illegally parked and obstructing a highway. If not moved immediately, it will be impounded by the council. Halliwell, who, as you can probably guess, owns no car, shoots back an angry letter in which he proclaims his innocence and tells Porritt to piss off. He signs the letter, Yours contemptuously, Kenneth Halliwell. Halliwell's response is just the evidence they needed. Sidney Porritt has been waiting for it. Ready with the watchmaker's looking glass he's bought especially for the occasion, he meticulously examines the letter until he's satisfied that the typewriter used for it is the same one that had perverted the dust jacket copy on so many of the library's books. Silly question, but could no two typewriters write the same? It's not exactly handwriting, is it? You'd think that wouldn't hold up in court. Right. The old, 
I just happened to be at the library multiple times in a week for years, suspiciously lurking around the stacks when my boyfriend and I were eyed as the prime suspects, and it just so happens that the walls of our bedsit are covered with photos and artwork that match the contents of the missing books. That, and we happen to have the exact same typewriter as the one used by the real criminals. <laughs> That's plenty of plausible deniability. I should have been their lawyer. Well, they don't have Santi as a lawyer, and when the hermit comes in and makes the arrest, it doesn't look good for Joe and Ken. Sidney Porrick couldn't be more happy with himself. He says, I fetch myself down to let you think I'm a fool, but I'm one step ahead of you all the time. Ah, that's their problem. They had the misfortune of encountering a bona fide Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, he concludes his boast with, it was just my psychological attempt to get on top of them. They realised they'd met somebody as cute as them. Here's a clip of Clerk Porritt summarising the case. I'm sorry I'd have to say this, but in my view, it was nothing else but common theft. He, he may have become successful later on, but to me, he was a... They were both a stealer of library books, stealer of other people's property. After their arrest, both men plead guilty and receive six months for theft and what the courts call malicious damage. Though I doubt there's a single person in the entire country, the judge included, who really believes their sentences for what they did to the library books. Clearly, they're being sentenced to six months in jail for being gay. And no one is more aware of the true reason for their sentencing than Orton and Halliwell themselves. Orton would later say it was, quote, because we were queers. When Kenneth and Joe moved in together in 1951, homosexuality in the UK was still very illegal, and buggery, as it was called, could legally result in life imprisonment. Police ran regular sting operations and actively hunted men who engaged in homosexual sex. One famous case was the celebrated mathematician and codebreaker Alan Turing, who after reporting a robbery to the police was immediately made the criminal when they accused him of homosexuality. Let that be a lesson, children. Do not call the cops. They are not your friends. Turing pled guilty and was forced to receive estrogen shots designed to chemically castrate him. And things only got worse for gay men in the UK in the years to come. Here's Simon Shepherd, the theatre scholar and author of Because We're Queers, a book on Orton and Halliwell that was very important to us during our research. Um, from, say, 1957 onwards, um, you could say that homosexuality was very much being put into the news, that stuff was being stirred up around homosexuality. If you go back further in time, if you go back to, I don't know, the 1890s and the Wild Trial, by and large, homosexuality didn't feature. I mean, the whole Wild Trial, or trial is sort of anomalous. But by, by the, 19, the late 1950s and 60s in Britain, and this is partly because of the Wolfenden Report, homosexuality has, had become a thing that people were on the lookout for, and the arrests started and all that sort of thing. Well, the so Wild Trial he referred to there is, of course, the trial of the great writer Oscar Wilde who was tried and imprisoned for homosexuality or gross indecency, as was the formal charge in 1897. Fifty years later, prison was still a threat to gay men. We asked Simon Shepard what kind of risk Hollywell and Orton were taking by living together. Oh, well, I think, I, I, I suspect it wasn't risky if you were just living together and abiding by the law and accepting your, uh, your status as... Um, you know, half a human being, really. And clearly the bars were still operating, all that sort of thing. I mean, uh, you know, there were gay bars, they didn't get closed down or anything. It was that tolerated, almost underclass of deviance. Uh, well, when I talked earlier about the, um, the pressure 
being put up was that there were the there were the raids on cottages etc etc there were the raids on cruising grounds anything out of line and the law was on it so you know the the law was ready and waiting as long if you stepped out of line so it's you know, you, if you behave as a good as a good boy, as it were, it's it's sort of okay. You get by, but it's but you have to not be loud and accept that status that you are you are a pervert. To quote from Shepard's book, "Behold the liberal trick: homosexuals will be welcomed by the heterosexual community once they prove themselves responsible." which means opposing all other homosexuals who get angry, outrageous, or proud. Gay sex would not be decriminalized. Wait, by gay sex, you mean sex between men, right? Ah, yes. Lesbianism was never actually illegal, probably because straight men think it's hot. But sex between men would not be decriminalized until July 27th, 1967, with the passing of the Sexual Offenses Act. But even then, it came with a number of restrictions. For instance, Gay sex could only happen in private homes, no hotel rooms, and the age of consent was 21 versus 16 for straight couples. This so-called decriminalization was still ages away from giving gays equal rights to heterosexuals. Between 1967 and 2003, over 30,000 gay and bisexual men were arrested for acts which would have been perfectly legal had their partners been women. Holding hands, for instance, was still risky business. In... in the very early 70s, in the Oxford Gay Action Group, as it was called in those days, it was like a gay liberation front. We would do things like hold hands in the street, um, just to, um, and, and that, that was, you had to think hard before doing that, uh, and it, but it was the sort of deliberately crossing the line um, between being obedient and quiet and, and stepping outside. Um, Even if the freedom that gay men received in 1967 was very limited, Joe Wharton and Kenneth Halliwell didn't get much of a chance to enjoy it. They were dead less than two weeks after the law was passed. Now, while we're shitting on the UK for its barbarically repressive homophobic past, which is, of course, not only in the past, I just want to quickly pivot across the pond for our U.S. listeners to remind them that we're no better than our Brit cousins. In fact, we're far worse. In the U.S., anti-sodomy laws still haven't been removed from the books in 14 states. And it wasn't until 2003 that the Supreme Court declared them unconstitutional. But as late as 2013 in Louisiana, men were being arrested for attempting to have gay sex and were charged with, quote, crimes against nature. And even today, in 2022, there are still plenty of ways in which queers are criminalized, from the anti-trans teenager law in Texas, which makes allowing your child to take hormones child abuse, and the lesser publicized but just as fucked up law in New York that's been called the walking wall trans law that allows cops to stop anyone who, in their eyes, could be loitering for purposes of engaging in prostitution. Okay, on that depressing note, let's get back to Joe and Kenneth and their time in prison. Basically, Kenneth doesn't take it well. Joe, however, claims it suited him just fine. On his time in prison, Orton says... I didn't suffer or anything the way Oscar Wilde suffered from being in prison. But then Wilde was flabby and self-indulgent. There is a complete myth about writers being sensitive plants. They're not. It's a silly 19th century idea 
but I'm sure Aristophanes was not sensitive. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why a writer shouldn't be as tough as a bricklayer. In prison, Joe spends much of his time doing what our friend from last season, Jack Henry Abbott, did. Wanking? Well, there's probably a bit of that, but actually I'm referring to reading and writing. And two things are quite different about the writing he starts doing in prison. For one, having always been an outsider looking in, there's been part of him that's wanted to please the society that's rejected him. And that was reflected in his early writings, primarily in that he initially adopted the rigidity and pompousness of Halliwell's style, which itself was largely derivative of the work of Ronald Furbank. Being locked up like an animal in a cell because you were caught being yourself, i.e. gay, is, short of execution, pretty much the ultimate rejection one can get from his society. And now, there's a large part of Joe that no longer gives the slightest fuck about pleasing that society. In an interview, he says, Before I had been vaguely conscious of something rotten somewhere, prison crystallized this. The old whore society really lifted up her skirt, and the stench was pretty foul. I tried writing before I went into the Nick, but it was no good. Being in the Nick brought detachment to my writing. I wasn't involved anymore. And suddenly, it worked. The other big difference in his writing is Halliwell, or rather Halliwell's absence. They do their time in separate prisons, and those months are the first time they've been separate in over a decade. Orton uses them to find a literary voice and a sense of self apart from Kenneth. Even though they mostly ended their collaborative writing partnership a few years ago, everything Joe's written since has continued to be edited by Kenneth. And according to playwright Christopher Hamilton, that means it's been robbed of its originality. So while Joe's finding his voice and working on his bricklayer's physique, Kenneth isn't doing so well. Prison was never part of the plan. He's 35 years old at the time of his sentencing, and unlike Joe, who's in his 20s and therefore can still somewhat buoy himself with the righteousness of youth and the idea that his real life is still ahead of him, Kenneth is absolutely mortified by the experience and sees it as another failure in a lifetime full of them. Shortly after his release, he tries to slit his wrists, and there's a second suicide attempt before year's end. As it is for many upon release from prison, life on the outside wasn't easy for Kenneth, nor for Joe. They were poor going in and even poorer when they came out. Our hero, the great Sidney Porritt, gloated with a big shit-eating grin when describing how he'd threatened to repossess their apartment in order to get them to pay a steep restitution, leaving them financially destitute upon release. I wanted to let them know that I was still the governor in this matter. I was still that much on top. They paid up like little darlings. I left them financially pretty rocky. But soon their luck, or Joe's luck anyway, will change. That new voice that he finds in the Nick will be put to good use, and the next year, 1963, the BBC will buy the rights to produce a radio version of Wharton's play, A Ruffian on the Stair. It will be the first success in a brilliant but tragically short career, a success that will begin to lift Joe up to the heights of prestige, wealth, and celebrity, but one that will not take Kenneth along with it. Joe's success will introduce a rift that will grow, eventually destroying both their relationship and their lives. During a fight in the last year of their life, Kenneth says to Joe, you're quite a different person, you know, since you've had your success. And Kenneth is right. In fact, in 1964, at his agent's suggestion, Orton becomes someone else entirely. John Orton sounds too similar to one of England's most famous playwrights, John Osborne, a central figure in the so-called angry young men group of writers in the 1950s. 
So with fame, John becomes Joe, and Joe no longer needs to doctor other people's books in the Islington Public Library to expose society's hypocrisy and have a laugh while he's at it. Joe's new stages will be the West End, Broadway, the radio, television, bookstores, and yeah, libraries as well. On the next episode of Penknife, we'll hear all about the transgressive works that made Joe Orton a name we remember. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood, Ramona Stout, and me, Santiago Lemoyne. Joe Wharton is voiced by Lou Ellis. A special thanks in this episode to Richard Metcalf, who played Sidney Porrett, and Camilla Williamson, who played Mrs. Davis. We also want to extend a big thanks to Leonie Orton and Simon Shepard for granting us interviews. Leonie's book, I Had It In Me, and Simon's Because We're Queers, were important resources for us in writing this season. The clips of the real Sidney Porrett and librarian extraordinaire Jim Connell were taken from the 1982 Arena documentary, A Genius Like Us, a portrait of Joe Wharton. Finally, we had the opportunity to visit the Joe Wharton archives at the Islington Public Library, where, along with a wealth of newspaper clippings, photos and ephemera, they still have some of the doctored books available for viewing. If you're ever in London and this story interests you, we highly recommend a visit. Cloak Perret no longer works there, and the staff is exceedingly polite. Penknife sound design, music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Guayar Torres. Flor Lopez designed our website, penknifepodcast.com, where you can find a full bibliography of the works we used in researching this season. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rick Urbanelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. If you're liking what you're hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do right now is to rate and review Penknife on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. And if you really like Penknife and want to hear more of it, please consider heading over to patreon.com penknife to support us. We'd hoped season two would be easier and cheaper to make than season one but telling this story the way we thought it deserved to be told ended up being nearly as time-consuming and even more costly. We'd love to keep making pen life, but to do so, we really need your help. Even a steak and kidney pie or two a month would go a long way. And regardless of whether or not you leave us a review or a few bucks, we thank you for listening. <laughs>